following sermon is from Faith Bible Church, located in Murrieta, California. More information about Faith Bible Church is available at www.faith-bible.net. Is there anything that you can't free yourself from? Are you enslaved? Interesting enough, Americans love and treasure freedom, but they often find themselves enslaved to something. You know what some of the main things are. Obviously, there's alcohol, uh, there's tobacco, gambling, pornography, high-risk behaviors, shopping, illegal and prescription drugs, painkillers, sleeping pills, internet gaming, smartphones, video games, and those basic behaviors sometimes find their way into the lives of Christians. But interesting enough, even if those are not your problems, Christians find themselves battling at times with sugar or coffee or fast foods or movies or theme parks or video games, hobbies, jobs, children, and even subtle behavior and preferential behavior can be an idol, neutral behavior in competition to your first love who would be Jesus Christ, over time, our preferences can actually rob us of our freedom, enslave us to the point where we actually love that event, that person, that thing, more than we do Jesus Christ. We exalt an event or a place or a person in some manner so that now we feel like we're in chains. And that's exactly what sin does. Sin will put you in chains. It will. Sin has an addiction to it. It can make you a slave. Now, we know from our scripture that everyone who's without Christ is enslaved to sin. In fact, they can't help it. But often, believers will allow themselves to get enslaved to the lesser, lesser things. Jesus put it this way in John 8, 34. He said, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the what? The slave of sin. That's where you look at your outline and then you repeat after me. Is the slave of sin. And then verse 36, so if the Son of Man makes you free, you are free indeed. That's right. Only Christ can free you from slavery to sin and the slavery of sin. Even though that is true, even as a Christian, you can be ineffective for Christ. You can become useless in his work. Sin can cause you to be ruined as a tool for his glory. Paul even cried out in Romans chapter 7, O wretched man that I am, O wretched woman that I am. He recognized his battle with sin. In fact, uh, Jesus put it this way, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Even though believers are freed from the penalty of sin and the power of sin, we are not yet free from the presence of sin, and let me add, the peskiness of sin. We are still in a battle against Satan, the world, and primarily, and most of all, our own flesh. We really are. In fact, our rank as a spiritual soldier is often evidences by our small victories over sin. It is seen in how we flee sin, and confess sin and repent of sin and even how we get help from other believers over sin and even how we long to be freed from sin as evidence of our heart even at the end of his life. 
Paul lamented that he was, present tense, still the chief of sinners. The great apostle Paul, yet still battling with sin in his life. And because our master and savior is holy and righteous and perfect in every way, any and all sin is an attack against his character and a violation of his law. And that is why Peter says, quote in the Old Testament, in 1 Peter 1.15, like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in how much of your behavior? All your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now understand, the nature of the word holy is actually has an idea, that it comes with it, the reference of being unique, being distinct, being different. In fact, holiness is a part of our witness to the watching world. It is part of the brightness in how we shine in this world. In fact, living holy proves to those who are still enslaved to sin, the non-Christian, that they can be freed if they turn to Christ. Our basic living of holiness proves that they can become freed from sin as well. So genuine believers in authentic church communities will live morally different than the world. We will. Different than the world, morally. Now, that's not because, are you ready? You're a conservative. It's not because you might own the term Republican. It's not because you're political. You basically live different than your society because you have been, are you ready, transformed in heart. You have been, the Bible says, regenerated, filled with His love, and given a new desire to obey his word. It's something that God does to you. You look the same on the outside, but you are not the same. You have a new nature and the indwelling Holy Spirit, and he is going to make you into a new person. And therefore, you have a desire. The indwelling Spirit and our new born-again nature moves you, empowers you, and drives you to make choices to live morally different and biblically holy. We are light and salt and a little bit weird to our culture because we make different moral choices than those who are still enslaved to sin. Because we have been freed from the penalty and the power of sin, we determine to follow the teaching of Scripture over the moral issues of our day and not to follow the trendy teaching of our day in our culture. Now, what does that mean? Well, today, in the midst of our series about what makes the church kind of weird and different and makes Christians in that church a little bit different, a little bit weird, we are looking at the moral differences, several moral differences. Now, you need this as well as I need this. We need to be prepared for the future, but we also need the bees. And the bees are, beware of the subtle moral attacks against yourself and especially your children. You need to be aware of that. Be aware of that. You also need to be burdened by the power of immoral sin to enslave you, and you're ready, write this down, to destroy you, to destroy you. You need to beseech the Lord, the next B, to beseech Him to assist you in being uniquely holy and morally different, to, to beseech Him to help you to be uniquely different, and, and you need to be blessed, and I hope you are, by the Lord giving you a new heart and the Holy Spirit that is different than those who are lost. You are no longer enslaved. You've been freed by Him. So here are a few of those differences. We want to celebrate those today that make us a little bit different, a little bit weird from our culture in a moral sense. Are you ready? If you have your outline, point number one in your outline, Christians are not confused about gender. 
Christians are not confused about gender. Now, we've been working this up for about 40 to 50 years. Uh, we used to call it, way back in the 80s, the gender blender, right? All of a sudden, guys were acting like girls, guys were dressing like girls, girls were dressing like guys, and all of a sudden, there was a unique blending confusion of the roles. Women reporters were going into NFL locker rooms with a bunch of naked guys, and it was okay because we were saying, hey, there's really no big deal, no big difference, that kind of thing. That kind of thing has been brewing in our cultural coffee pot for decades, But now we've reached the pinnacle. The pinnacle is our culture now says gender is a choice. It's a choice. That's what our culture says. So instead of pursuing God's creative design and submitting to God's perfect sovereign will already predetermined before time. You were determined to be a man, determined to be a woman by God before time. Understand, instead of submitting to that, we now tell our children, listen, our culture wants us to, that they're not male or they're not female made by their creator, but they can choose whatever they want to be. And friends, the result is a disaster. Absolute disaster. This wave of satanic attack not only destroys the image of God in men and women, it is enslaving and annihilating our youth. Let me put it to you plainly, the next generation will not survive. This is the end of our culture, end of it. The only hope is Jesus Christ. The only hope is that they would submit to him and find God's plan for their life. Recently, a junior high teacher said to two girls who were fighting, stop fighting girls, which then one of the girls looked up at him and said, I'm not a girl. And then teachers who are normally used to kids trying on different hats every day are now facing uh, guys and gals who are male and female day to day changing from one to the other. Monday, they're a guy in jeans. Tuesday, they're a girl in the dress. Wednesday, there's some other aberrant option in between. So, it's confusing today for the secular person. But what about those who are Christians? Well, you need to go to the very first book in the Bible. It's not hard to find. It's called the book of Genesis. Turn to chapter 1 in the book of Genesis because, friends, please turn there. I want you to look at these passages together. You should have a Bible with you. Friends, God is the creator of the heaven and earth, and God is the creator of male and female. There are only two genders, different, yet God made them in his image. They're complementary but unique. Take a look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. It says... Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them, male and female, rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. Write that down, circle that, male and female He created them. The image of God in male and female makes each sex unique in that we give the world a picture. Our design, being made in the image of God, is that we are different from the animal world. We are different than any other creature on this planet. We are uniquely designed as male and female in order to give the world, are you ready, a picture of who God is. Uniquely, beyond all other creatures on planet Earth, we are to display God's character. Give them a picture 
of who God is. And with that image, both male and female, displaying God's character with equal brilliance, God said, let them rule, meaning equal value and equal purpose. Maybe, I understand some of you gals might think, listen, I, I, I don't know if I can understand this because my husband, he's a beast, all right? Uh, he's not human, he's a beast. And some of you guys are going, my wife is Al Capone in a skirt. I don't get this. But understand, no matter who they are, they are made in whose image? God's image. We're also in marriage to be one yet unique. To be one yet unique. Like the Father, Son, and Spirit. The Trinity is one, and yet they are uniquely different. And in marriage, I am a male, she is a female, distinct, but one. There is no choice here. This is what God designed. God determines your gender, and the original blueprint, male and female are different, and those differences were designed to complement and function like a team. God did not design the gender uh, issues and each gender to do the same thing, like a doubles team in tennis, you each have your own side of the court to kind of manage, and this is the way Jesus put it in Matthew chapter 19, verse 4. He said, and you got to get this one down, memorize this one, he who created them from the beginning made them, say it with me, male and female, just two, just two, male and female, healthy marriages complement each other with a pilot and a co-pilot, each doing their distinct job, keeping the plane airborne and safe as we work together. Listen, I put it this way. You play different instruments in marriage in God's orchestra, but in harmony, you play different notes, but you make beautiful music together. Believing God's word means there are only two genders. And that makes you weird. Makes you unique. But it keeps us holy. And prevents us from being enslaved by sin and destroyed by sin. To destroy the two clear genders is to attack against God and a violation of His Word. In fact, to deny only two genders is sin, which will then enslave you and potentially destroy. God is sovereign in choosing your gender and making you a male and a female. Can I hear an amen to that? He's sovereign. Men who surgically alter themselves and give themselves drugs are merely mutilated men on drugs before God. They are not women. They are not she. Caitlyn Jenner is still a man. He is still Bruce Jenner. Those women who surgically alter themselves and take drugs are mutilated women who are on drugs and not men. You do not choose your own gender. God already did. Number two in your outline. Morally, Christians view abortion as murder. Christians view abortion as murder. Abortion is not a political issue it is a people issue, a human issue, a love for your neighbor issue, a moral issue. Combating abortion does not mean that we're aiming at making women more moral. We are simply seeking to save the lives of innocent unborn children. Christians are not trying to force a biblical morality on the unbelieving world. The world already intrinsically knows that it is wrong to kill a baby. They're just not fully aware that this is exactly what abortion is doing, killing a baby. Now, interesting enough, 70% of the 
of aborting women in the U.S. identify as Christian, which means there's a lot of confusion in the church about abortion, and there's a lot of confusion about what a real Christian is. The world tells us, not the Bible, the world tells us it's not a baby, just a mass of tissue, the fetus is not a person, abortion is my choice because this is my body. That's what the world says. The Word, the Bible, the Word teaches your body belongs to God, God creates life, and abortion is murder because life begins at conception. Understand, the Bible teaches that children are a gift from God. Psalm 127, verse 3, a gift from the Lord. Children come from God's hand. God is the one who created children, and children are God's unique creation. God opens the womb in Genesis 20. He also closes the womb. The creating of life of a human being is a sovereign work of God. In fact, Job says it this way. Look at this verse, very important. Job 12, verse 10 in God's hand is the life of every living thing. Is the life. Now turn, if you would, to Psalm 139. Again, I hope you have a Bible with you. We're looking at verses 13 through 16, one of the clearest passages in the Bible describing God's active involvement in the womb, starting in verse 13 of Psalm 139. It says, in verse 13, it says, For you were formed... And you were forming me in my inward parts. You formed my inward parts. My heart, my lungs, my kidney, my liver, and other vital organs. You wove me in my mother's womb. The Hebrew literally is you stitched me together in my mother's womb. Verse 14, I will give thanks to you for I am fearfully, wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works and my soul knows it very well. Verse 15, my frame was not hidden from you, bones, muscle, ligaments, tendons, when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. The depths of the earth is a euphemism for the womb, the hidden place, the secret place. Verse 16, your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, yet as yet there was not one of them. This is God intimately involved in the child's development in the womb. In fact, you got to love Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5, when the prophet says, before I was formed you, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. I knew you. God knew us. This is his job. In fact, Dr. Jerome Lejeune, who discovered the genetic link to Down syndrome, said, quote, after fertilization has taken place, a new human being has come into being. This is no longer a matter of taste. This is no longer a matter of opinion, end quote. Each person in this room and every infant born has an incredible beginning. A baby's heart starts beating 21 days after conception. Four days later, at, at day 25, it will be pumping blood through the embryo's tiny body, beating approximately 54 million times before birth. During week four, the brain begins to divide into its three major sections, and the arms and legs take shape. Hands and feet emerge after four weeks. After six weeks, the brain emits impulses, and the embryo responds to stimuli. This is about the time a woman discovers that she is pregnant. This is amazing. After seven weeks, distinct leg movements and hiccups have been observed, and I love this. Even in the womb, the embryo develops the ability to smell. Isn't that incredible? To smell. 
I mean, you know, I can see that unborn baby saying, lay off the Brussels sprouts, mom, because, man, that's stinky. All right, so after eight weeks, every organ is present and in place. After nine weeks, fetuses are capable of sucking their thumb, grasping objects, responding to touch, and doing somersaults, which you ladies know so well. Week 10, the child squints, swallows, and frowns. Week 12, the child is kicking, curling his toes, making a fist, moving his thumbs, and opening his mouth. All of this occurs in the first trimester, the first 12 weeks. In the remaining trimesters, the second and the third, nothing new develops, nothing begins new functioning, the fully intact child only grows and matures. So it's an indisputable fact that every surgical abortion stops a beating heart and stops an already measurable brain waves. Every abortion stops a beating heart and stops already measurable brain waves. Abortion is not just a procedure that terminates a pregnancy. It is the murder of an innocent and defenseless human life. Christians will stand for life because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. God is the author of life. God oversees life. Each infant is specially designed by our Creator, made in His image, and here for His glory. Those who support abortion are in defiant rebellion against the Creator of life. Abortion is the murder of a person who cannot defend themselves. Now, never forget, forgiveness in Christ covers abortion. And many women have come to Christ because of an abortion as they sought God's forgiveness and repentance in Christ, they have been made whiter than snow. Can I hear an amen to that? They have. That child, I believe, goes immediately into God's presence. And I believe I can defend that biblically. If you're interested in that, I can tell you about Mark 10 and a passage there that would help you to understand that. But understand this. You can be forgiven. You can be cleansed. And you can be washed whiter than snow. But no born-again, new-natured, and dwelt-with-the-Holy-Spirit Christian will support abortion nor will they knowingly support or vote for those who encourage abortion. And that is not a political statement. That is not a party statement. It is that we have seen from God's Word a violation of His character, a violation of His Word, a violation of His law, and a violation of the very nature of existence. Number three. Christians reject homosexuality. Christians reject homosexuality. Leviticus 18, 22 says, God defines homosexual behavior as detestable. Homosexuality is a sexual perversion. Is it against God's design, against God's will, and against God's word? When God chooses to punish the human race and a society that is rejecting him, as he activates his active judgment, it is that he judges us with giving us over to lesbianism and homosexuality. It is a part of his judgment against society. Romans 1 says he gives them over to that sin and punishes society with 
homosexuality. It is not an alternative lifestyle. It is an aberrant sin, violating God's character, which brings about horrific enslavement and terrifying consequences. The gospel is so powerful. The good news is so good. It is that homosexuals can be freed from their sin. Can I hear an amen to that? He can't. They can. But only if they repent of homosexuality and the rest of their sin. And they put their whole life and their whole hope in Jesus Christ. Independent faith. You need to understand there are few sins that are as enslaving as homosexuality and lesbianism. It binds people in the chains of aberrant lust. The vast majority of homosexuals, the vast majority, not all of them, the vast majority have an unending number of partners. They are participating in repeated, perverted, and bizarre sexual practices. They're consumed by their passions and so filled with guilt they will do anything and everything to gain legitimacy and now you understand what society is doing. Everything and anything to gain legitimacy. Someday soon, it might be an employer, it might be a teacher, it might be some government official, but they may say to you, you're a bigot. You're a racist. You're a criminal. Because I've heard you, your hate speech, when you say that homosexuals are sinners and homosexuality is a sin. If you say that, you're just like the Nazis who butchered six million Jewish people. You're evil in what you say. You're unloving to not embrace this lifestyle. Now you can respond by saying, well, every person alive is a sinner, and God does love sinners and wants them to come to repentance, and so do I. You could say, you, you don't have to be a homosexual to be a sinner, we're all sinners. You could say, you don't have to be homosexual or gay to go to hell, you, you're going to go to hell even if you're really, really, really nice without Christ. But after all that, and when you're pressed you will need to turn to Romans chapter 1 and 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I hope you will right now. Turn to Romans 1, and you need to show them that it is God and His Word who call homosexuality a sin. Turn there now, if you would. Romans chapter 1. Please look at it. Paul describes three steps of active judgment today as God is giving people over. The first step is to give them over to immorality. If they refuse to submit to Him and follow Him, they're going to give them over to the sin of immorality. That's happened. They're also the second step is God's going to judge society by giving them over to lesbian and homosexual behavior described in verses 26 and 27. Take a look at it there. Verse 26, For this reason God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire towards one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Romans 1 clearly calls homosexual behavior not an alternative lifestyle. Not gay, not happy, but using the words of Roman 1. 
It calls this behavior degrading passions. It calls it literally unnatural. It is lustful desire. It is indecent acts resulting in penalizing consequences. Turn, if you would, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. Please turn there in your Bibles on the heels of condemning those who serve their brothers and sisters in a court of law who sue them. Paul gives this clear warning to all believers. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9 and following. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the what? The kingdom of God. Don't be deceived about this. The unrighteous who practice unrighteousness in their lifestyle will not inherit the kingdom of God. Don't be deceived. Neither fornicators or idolaters or adulterers or effeminate nor homosexuals nor thieves nor the covetous nor drunkards nor revilers nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. But verse 11, but such were some of you, but you were washed You were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in the Spirit of our God. Those who live unrighteously as a way of life, not stumbling and struggling with unrighteousness, but living that way as a way of life, those who are known for a pattern of unrepentant, defiant sin, those who are in ongoing unrepentant sin, even though they claim to be a Christian, are not believers. They're not saved, they're not going to heaven, they're not living under God's rule. That's what he means when he says they will not inherit the kingdom of God. They're not. Paul clearly states that along with ongoing adulterers, continual fornicators, look what he says, unrepentant thieves, repeating drunkards, that those who continually practice unrepentant homosexuality are clearly unsaved. The effeminate, men who want to act or live like women, and those who practice the sin of homosexuality are not born again. Because they must repent of that sin and turn to Christ for salvation. And again, you say, well, can they? Yes! Take a look at what he says in verse 11. Paul adds, such were, past tense, some of you. It can be part of your past. And when you are genuinely saved, you are internally washed, verse 11. You are set apart to serve Christ. You are justified by the work of Christ and salvation by the Spirit of God. Homosexuality, on the other hand, is enslavement to the sin of lust. Enslavement. It destroys their lives. Biology teaches you that it is aberrant, The Bible teaches you that it is a defiant sin against God. You've been freed, Christian. Freed from the power of sin. Freed from the penalty of sin. You have been delivered to live by God's design. He empowered you with the Spirit. He gave you a new nature that you can walk according to God's Word, holy and unique. Number four. God hates divorce. God hates divorce. Now, how do you make a marriage work? Again, a lot of kids were asked this question. Ricky, age 10, was given the answer. He's given this answer. How do you make a marriage work? Ricky says, quote, tell your wife that she looks pretty even if she looks like a truck. There you go. There's the key. God made marriage, (laughs) and divorce breaks marriage, 
So God hates divorce, yet one in three, one in five, one in seven, depending on who you talk to and averages going on, it's about one in five marriages end in divorce. In order to understand divorce, though, you have to understand what a marriage is, biblically. Marriage is a permanent relationship of one man and one woman before God, consisting of, now get this, a vow before God which is witnessed by people at the wedding. That's why you have a wedding, for the vow. You say, well, it's for the dress, it's for the flowers, it's for the bride. No, it's for the vow before God to one another. And marriage is a consummated union, meaning physical intimacy, which occurs at the honeymoon. That's marriage, simply stated. When you marry, you make an unbreakable vow before God. I like to tell men, one life, one wife. The wedding is not the marriage. It is the beginning of the marriage. The wedding is for the purpose of making a public vow to God. And the honeymoon is to consummate the union of two becoming one, more than a physical act, but the permanent joining of a man and a woman as husband and wife for life. Marriage before God, then, has begun by a vow and a physical union. Write it down. Marriage is a vow and a union. Making this clear will help you understand divorce and what breaks a marriage What could justify a divorce? And biblically, what dissolves a marriage? Ready? Only two major ways. You make break the marriage vow or you violate the marriage union. Marriage is a vow and a union. If you break the union and you break the vow, you've ruined, destroyed, harmed the message. You break the vow through physical abandonment described in 1 Corinthians 7.15. And you break the consummated union through adultery found in Matthew 5.32. Now, God is very clear about his attitude toward divorce. It's not shared by our society, but it is shared by believers. He hates it so much, he makes his hatred for divorce really clear in Malachi chapter 2. It says, the Lord, take a look at it in your outline, has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion. And your wife by covenant, that's wife by vow, wife by promise, that's what he's talking about, marriage, that vow, let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. Why? Verse 16, God says, for I, what? Hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. Christians never counsel or encourage divorce because God hates it. Now understand, God in his mercy allows divorce for the breaking of the vow because of physical abandonment. And he allows for divorce by the breaking of the unique union of oneness because of adultery. And there are people in our midst who are the innocent party. They, they are the one whose spouse abandoned them. They're the one whose spouse committed adultery and They are free from the stigma, the shame, and the restriction of divorce. They can divorce. They don't have to forgive. You say, well, that's terrible. That's terrible. Yeah, they have to forgive. But they don't have to restore that relationship. Do you know why? Because that other person broke the marriage. Are you with me? They broke the marriage. You say, really? Yes, adultery is that bad. It is. So understand. Yes. Amen. So get it, God hates divorce, 
because it destroys his purpose, it maligns his character, it slanders his word, it violates his law. But there are those in our midst who have repented from an unbiblical divorce and they are forgiven and they are washed and they are moving on in which to glorify and honor God. Is your sin greater than God's grace? Yes or no? Is God's grace greater than your sin? Yes or no? Yes, it is. Now listen, friends, we get it. These are painful topics. But God's grace is far greater than your little eyedropper of sin. His ocean of grace can forgive and cleanse and build a whole new relationship. But let's not violate God's attitude. Let's not violate his teaching. Divorce is another attack on God's design. It is an attack on God's plan for the family. It is an attack on children. They are going to suffer consequences because of this. It can be overcome. God can do marvelous things in his grace. But understand, we need to see this the way God does. God's method for putting himself on display partly is marriage. He even tells us that in Ephesians chapter 5, marriage is oneness, distinct persons, so is our triune God. Oneness, yet distinct persons. And when that union in marriage is broken, it damages that witness and it damages those people. Again, God can rebuild, God can restore, we get that. On the other hand, you need to understand that healthy marriages glorify God. Through the power of the Spirit, according to the Word of God, when couples function as one, even though they are male and female, and even though they are radically different, radically, opposites attract, and opposites attack. Okay, they're radically different. But understand, God is glorified, and the world takes notice. Again, I weary from sharing this illustration, but it was such a shock to me. Unknowingly, I put married couples, young married couples, even older married couples, who were loving the Lord. They weren't perfect, far from it, but they loved the Lord. They were one in Christ. They were seeking to fill out their roles. They were doing uh, their marriage according to the Scripture as best they could, imperfectly as well, but I put them at UCLA, and I put them at CSUN, and was shocked by the response of students who've come from all over the world, who came from horrible homes, and they saw these marriages, and they said this, a direct quote from more than one collegian, I don't know what's going on in that marriage, but whatever it is, I want it. Because that marriage was a testimony and a witness to God's incredible capacity to have people be one in Christ and yet uniquely different male and female. Listen, we understand God's grace is sufficient. Can I hear an amen one more time? It's true. It's true. And God can take the wreck of a marriage, multiple divorces, and turn that into a shining light for His glory. He can. But let's not minimize God's attitude toward divorce. Amen? Let's not minimize it. Number five. Christians flee immorality, adultery, and fornication. Uh, Christians flee immorality. Understand, immorality should have no place among Christians, but sadly it does. And what Christians forget is this. It is the small internal choices that you make, the unconfessed compromises which lead to immorality. It's an internal issue. All sin is bad, but sex outside marriage carries a mark. What's he say in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18? Flee immorality. And flee there is actually run in terror. 
Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Sexual intimacy is unique. It was meant for marriage and to remain in marriage between a husband and a wife. The day you got married, the day you got married is the day you gave your spouse your body. It is not your body anymore. It's theirs. It belongs to them. You gave it to them. And you are to obey the repeated four times in four verses here. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1-4, through four, you are commanded to practice intimacy in marriage. That's a normal part of marriage. Schedule it. Plan it. Be impromptu. But fulfill your responsibility to be intimate in marriage. We have marriages today where they're not practicing what God has designed for marriage. In fact, one couple I knew decided that they would plan intimacy each day of the week that began with the letter T, right? So the young husband said, yes, Tuesday, Thursday, Tatterday, and Tunday, okay? So, sexual intimacy inside of marriage is God's design. He designed the whole program for His glory and your joy. The purposes of intimacy in the Scripture are propagation, pleasure, provision, protection, God's praise. But sexual intimacy outside of marriage is against God's will. He didn't design it to be outside of marriage. It's against God's word. It's against God's perfect design. It is a sin against your own body, a sin against others, your spouse, your future spouse, their future spouse. It is never between just two people. You say, why do people compromise in this area? Well, a lot of reasons come to the surface. Life is full of stress. They're vulnerable. They lack friendship. They're, they're distant from the Lord. Uh, they allow fantasies in their mind. They're lonely. Uh, life didn't turn out like they thought. They're disappointed. They think they won't get caught. They have unfulfilled expectations. Or they don't realize as singles how strong physical desire is when you're young. It's like jet engines on a Volkswagen body. I mean, then they're ripe for sexual compromise. But remember, the solution to remaining pure is not done by keeping a list of rules, but keeping a heart relationship. In your outline, seek Christ first. You stay pure by focusing on the only true pure one. Our love and affection and devotion has got to be towards Christ. 1 John 3, 3, everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as what? He is pure. Look at supervise your heart. Take a look at that passage there, Mark 7, 21, very carefully. It is within, out of the what? Heart, where fornication comes. Purity is a heart attitude, which seeks to please Christ first internally, and then stay sensible in life. Remaining pure requires proper thinking and biblical behavior. You have to flee, again, run in terror from lust. You say, how do you do it? Well, do it like it's shown in the scripture. Prepare for situations like Joseph did with Potiphar's wife. Plan your environment. You know, the Bible tells you, make no provision for the flesh. What that means is if you're at 3 a.m. and it's dark and you're alone in a house as a single with another single of the opposite sex, that is not a good place to be. You're not making uh, wise decisions. You need to plan your environment. Stay public. Ponder your appearance, pursue modesty, and be aware of what your clothing choices communicate. Pounce on your thoughts of lust, and pounce on opportunities of visual media of lust. 
uh, pursue righteousness. Don't just not sin, but pursue Christ. As you pursue him, you're actually fleeing sin. And then maintain your marriage. Take care of each other. Invest in the relationship that God has given you. Let me be folksy for a minute. All right, are you ready? Don't write it down, just remember it. The grass is not greener on the other side of the fence. The grass is greener where you water it. You focus on your spouse. You make him or her your ideal person. You determine that she is the standard of beauty. You determine how you're going to behave with others of the opposite sex in order to cherish the one above all others in every way. Understand, focus on your spouse, stay sensible, flee lust, flee immorality, stay away from any potential compromise. Yes, you will appear different. You may even appear weird. But living holy in all your behavior is how we put Christ on display, how we remain flee from slavery of sin, and how we glorify God and really, really exalt Him with how we live. Are you willing to be weird for Christ. Let's wrap it up with these final challenges. Letter A in your outline, it would be never forget what you were before Christ. What you were before Christ saved you. I love Titus 3.3 and the following because what does it say? It says, for we also, this is us talking about you and I, once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, and watch this, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. That was you. That was me. We used to be enslaved, but Christ freed us. Don't go bashing your friends who are confused, enslaved to perversion, compromising, ruining their lives with the pursuit of lust and pleasure. That was you. That was me. So you need to do what Paul says in the very next verse. What's he say? But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he what? Saved us because of the works we did, because of works we did in righteousness, deeds we've done? No. But according to his mercy, by washing us, making us new internally, born again, regeneration, and renewing us by the Holy Spirit, you are no longer the same person. You are a new person. Christ alone can forgive all those moral sins and make you brand new internally. Remember what he did for you and you will have compassion for those who are still enslaved to sin. Remember that he freed you, he washed you, he renewed you. Letter B, avoid political rhetoric and make God's character and God's word the issue. Better government does not make better people. Only the gospel can transform a life. That's our message. Winning an argument with somebody about a moral issue is not going to change their heart, but God's word can save them and God's word can sanctify them. Embracing a political position will not get you to heaven, but embracing the work of Christ, dying on the cross, rising from the dead can save you. Stop in a moral compromise will not forgive you if you stop it on your own, but turning from your sin, embracing the work of Christ, and dying for you, rising from the dead, and ascending into heaven can forgive you. Just make certain your focus is on God and His Word, and that the gospel is the message that you share, not changing the laws of the land. That can help, but that's not our focus. Our focus is that people would be born again transformed internally that's the only way they'll be rescued 
and let her see. Without sanctification, you will not see Christ. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14, pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Friends, living holy is not an option. In fact, understand, God gives us a heart to flee sin and pursue righteousness. Listen, if there's no sanctification in your life, if you're not more like Christ in some measure from a year ago, it's time for you to pray to search your heart, to talk to your friends, to talk to your family, and to test your heart before the Lord to make sure that you're truly, genuinely born again. Let's pray, shall we? Father, thank you again for your word. Thank you for this time that we've had in your word. We pray, Father, that if there are any who are without you, that you would use Uh, this teaching from scripture to draw them to yourself and for the rest of us may we boldly stand on truth when we boldly be able to live the truth may we make sure that in our own hearts we are pursuing you and fleeing sin and father may we stand boldly upon what your word declares and love what you love and hate what you hate and we'll give you all the glory for what you do you deserve it all nothing comes to us We pray again that you would make us more into the men and women you want us to be. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Thanks for listening today. Sermon audio from the last three years is available by podcast. And a larger archive from Chris Mueller and Faith Bible Church can be found at media.faith-bible.net. And if you would, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps a lot. Thanks, and have a great day.